Welcome to the Awakening Shalom Podcast. The Awakening Shalom Podcast is an opportunity for digital faith formation at Myers Park Baptist Church that accompanies the Awakening Series, a year-long journey of exploration and discernment which invites all people to come learn about the current social justice issues of the day and how they impact our faith. What we are awakening to is Shalom, the Hebrew word for the peace and beauty that exists when we are living in right relationship with God, ourselves, other human beings, and all created things. Welcome back to the Earth Justice Podcast Series. I'm Mia McLean, and I'm here with... Ben Boswell. And we're going to jump right in. This is Episode 3. We hope you've gotten a chance to listen to our conversation um, that was Episode 1 and then Episode 2 from last Thursday. So we're going to jump in, as we usually do, with an organization of the week. We have two. There are so (laughs) many great great organizations doing things both nationally and locally. So I I really wanted to give space for this so that people can plug in where they need to. Um, So this first organization I discovered a couple of months ago, it's called green the church. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, And I found them on social media and this is who they are. Since their inception in 2010, Green the Church has been standing at the intersection of ecology and theology for the black church. It is an initiative designed to tap into the power and purpose of the African-American church community and to explore and expand the role of churches as centers for environmental and economic resilience. Ooh, my. Yes. My, my. They do excellent work. In fact, um, I think last weekend they had their national summit. They have one yeah. summit every year where they gather speakers, leaders um, to sit down and really talk about environmental justice mm-hmm. issues, earth justice issues as it relates to the black church specifically. That's outstanding. Yeah. 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 I think that – I think it's so interesting. I wonder how um, – if, if there is a complementary sort of white church example of this or how could white churches participate in this and be uh, and be led by black churches in right. the work of environmental justice yeah uh, instead of always trying to reinvent the wheel or doing their own thing or mm-hmm. you know what I mean um, I just think it's really powerful that uh, that there is this particular intersection of ecology and theology in the black church experience that's being pursued here by yeah. Green the church. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, you know, Ambrose Carroll, who is the founder uh, or the director, and he partners with them a lot, Reverend Ambrose Carroll. Um, I mean, he would argue that so much of the environmental justice movement or earth justice movements have been white centered. Right. And so Green the Church is saying, hey, we care about this, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And as it relates specifically to black communities, which we will talk about a little later, the intersections of a lot of environmental right. injustice issues um, are are dealing with race and class mm. as it relates mm. to earth care. Yeah. So I think it's phenomenal work. They have some uh, go to their website, greenthechurch.org. Yes. Um, they have three pillars that they focus on. So amplifying green theology is one. Mm-hmm. Promoting sustainable practices is two, and building power for change. Yeah, that's an organizer mm-hmm. organizing there. What is green theology? Green the I you know I, I'm not <laughs> I'm not like, sure their definition. Okay, okay. 
But I'm I'm assuming it's something to do with eco theology. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. they're using green because it's easier for people to understand than like eco feminism. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, which we learned when we tried to do the ad for uh, the Keller series. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, WFA saying, you know, do you want to put eco feminism in this ad? <laughs> You know, yeah. and we had to figure out what's accessible. What do people really understand? What are yeah. the, what's the language of the common, common dialect that people would say? Oh, that's an event I want to be a part of because I care about this. Right. You know. Right. Right. So this is a, a wonderful organization. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing how we may be able to partner with them in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, a lot of their participants um, are into sustainable farming practices in their communities, kind of neighborhood mm-hmm. gardens are very popular now and using mm-hmm. church property to do that. Also solar panels, which we have here. So you're seeing a lot more um, African-American center churches exploring the possibility of investing in solar panels. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Like we have. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, we had some folks come when they had a, a sort of a local gathering of Green the Church come over and look at our solar panels. Mm-hmm. In fact, Otis Moss was on our roof, which right. is kind of cool. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, so we're looking forward to the work that they do. Yeah. Um, our second organization, which many of you might be familiar with, is Green Faith. Mm. Um, there's plenty of members in Myers Park Baptist Church who are part of the Green Faith chapter here in Charlotte. Um, Green Faith is an interfaith coalition for the environment that works with houses of worship, religious schools, and people of all faiths to help them become better environmental students. Mm. Their mission is they believe in addressing environmental issues holistically and are committed to being a one-stop shop for the resources and tools religious institutions need to engage environmental issues and become religious environmental leaders. Right. That's right. Yes. So I mean I love the work that they've they've been doing so far. We've met some of their leaders here in the city, Reverend Amy Brooks, who um, is at the University of Unitarian Universalist right. Church. And then That's we right. also have people in our congregation like Kate Green who is a part yeah. of that as well. Sure. Yeah. I love the interfaith aspect of what they're doing there. And I think this is the work that we all need to do is to figure out how our faith – this is part of the podcast. The point of the podcast is to figure out how our faith intersects with ecological issues, which yeah. is what we're trying to figure out as we talk together. So shout out to Green the Church and shout out to Green Faith. Keep yes. up the great work. We're looking forward to finding ways to partner with you. Absolutely. So let's jump in. So okay. we have a lot to talk about today. Let's do it. <laughs> um, and so part of the reason why we're doing this is to look at the intersection of faith and earth justice, but also to look at the ways in which that intersects with other things, like I mentioned before, race and class yes. and yes. and yes. other things. Um, and so I wanted to jump into a conversation that mm. was really that really ties together why we're doing this. Mm. Um, and as I mentioned before, with regard to Green the Church, there were many people who felt like um, environmental justice had become a white-centered issue. Yes. Some of the major organizations were white-centered, and not even just white-centered, but an upper upper echelon yes. of folks. So yes. even in terms of class, right, you're not, <laughs> you're not getting people from poor Appalachian cities, right. you know, in, right. in Sierra Club. It's very much like, oh, the New York City <laughs> yeah. upper echelon are the leaders of this. And so yes. I wanted to really bring in an article to the conversation. Let's do it. Let's dive in. Yes. So the name of this article is called The Unsustainable Whiteness of Green. What a title. It is yes. a title. Um, and I found this online. It was Green published. theology is clearly – green just echo theology and echo philosophy and environmental yeah. justice efforts tend to be 
overly white, white-centered. This mm-hmm. is sort of what the point of the article is, right? Right. I mean, I think we see that with Greta Thunberg, right? Is that mm-hmm. here is a, you know, it's a it's a white activist or European, white European mm-hmm. activist who sits down and there's so much more highlighting of her than say little Miss Flint who we right. have coming who is nat- who is from our own country, right? Mm-hmm. And so Greta is already like an international superstar. Right. Whereas Little Miss Flynn is more localized, and uh, why is there a difference? They're not that different in age. No, they're, what they're raising awareness about is not that different, right? right? And one is talking to the UN, and the other is coming to Myers Park Baptist Church, right? <laughs> Which we're happy about. Which is wonderful. It's <laughs> great. We're so excited. But like, I just think it's that highlights the difference, yeah. right? Doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It absolutely highlights the difference, and. What we'll, what we'll see in this article as I, I begin to unpack it is what that difference is and how much harder certain people of different classes and races have to work mm. to, to get heard. Mm, mm, mm. So in this piece written by Amelia Bates, we are centering around a guy named Aaron Mayer. And yeah. if you are a big Sierra Club person, he was the first African-American president of mm. the Sierra Club mm-hmm. not too long ago. So this is, you know, this is all very, very new. Um, So basically, Aaron is deciding whether or not to move his family to a suburb in Albany or to the city of Albany. Um, And I lived in upstate New York for a while. And so upstate New York is one of those places where, you know, industry left many of those cities in peril. It's continued Binghamton, Buffalo, yeah, Syracuse. Yeah, yeah. When when industry left, you know, there's these factories are just sitting there, and there's a there's a huge um, a huge divide between sort of um, wealthier suburban culture and then people who really want to pour into the city and live in the city, right? But it's very dilapidated, right? You know, um, and so Aaron decides that he wants to move him, his his partner, and his daughters to uh, the city of Albany. Mm. And so they move into this beautiful house. He calls it his dream home. And they start to notice over time that soot was on his car every morning and black flakes were falling from from the air. Um, They say the air was accurate. And over about a five-year period, um, both of his daughters began to develop asthmatic symptoms. And so this is when he started doing a little more research about the neighborhood. And what he found out was that the area around his home – was receiving pollution and poison from the state-run garbage incinerator. Oh, boy. Yes. God. And so he goes to work and he tells a friend about this. One of his friends is a part of the Sierra Club chapter in Albany, but but his friend Roger says, hey, man, you know, I think you should go to the, the national offices in New York because they're the ones who have the pockets of right. money. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so he sends, he, sends, uh, he sends Aaron two hours south to Albany, to go to present his case in front of the Sierra Club. And do you want to know what they tell him then? <laughs> I'm not sure I want to know, but I'm guessing you're going to tell me. <laughs> they ask him, did you check with the NAACP? Oh, no, no, no. No, 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 no. Yeah. Why? Because this is a black issue. Yeah. It's not it's a, a black neighborhood or a black issue. Not or, just an environmental issue. Yeah. A black issue. Right. So he he's coming. He's petitioning, saying, hey, we need help. We need some funds so that we can shut down the incinerator. They turn him down there, right then and there. Check with yes. the NAACP. That's that's not our thing. 
Yeah. Um, and so years passed. You know, it, what happened is his friend, who was part of the Sierra, the, the local Sierra chapter, ended up raising the funds for him to campaign to shut down the incinerator. They eventually get this to happen, and then okay. Um, okay. Aaron decides over time that he's going to work his way up the chain of the Sierra Club, and then eventually becomes the first African American president. Wow. But you know what this story shows us is that. This is an issue that intersects so deeply with race and class, mm-hmm. particularly, mm-hmm. and that we can't continue to have the conversation as as if it's just about, oh, we want to save some of the animals and the grass and the trees, which is very important. Right. But there are actual people who are who are doing this work and fighting for their lives. Right. In some ways, it's like a lot of other issues where it's like mass incarceration is just an issue, mm-hmm. right, for Americans to deal with. But, of course, it overly impacts black and brown communities mm-hmm. more than it does white communities, right? And in this particular case, environmental injustice issues tend to impact black and brown communities, poor communities more, mm-hmm. you know? And so you can't really, you can't really uh, uh, understand the issue without understanding the complexities of the ways in which it, it, how it impacts different communities. If you just go at it like, well, this is just an issue all of us should care about. Mm-hmm. You know, and white people should care about it, and black people should care about it, and everybody should care about it, and let's go out there and have a march, you know, mm-hmm. and not really understanding that in the same way as in other cases, there are people who are more impacted, and the people who are the most impacted should be leading the movement, right? Mm. Whereas those who are least impacted should be supporting in the ways that they can and letting the voices of those most impacted by the oppression of environmental injustice to be the voice at the heart of the movement. And that doesn't really happen a lot. And I think this – maybe that's begun to happen as Sierra Club and others have been confronted by the question of environmental racism and mm-hmm. they've had to rethink their efforts. But I'm sure that there's there's more of that needed across the board with all the environmental justice organizations. Don't right. you think? I'm imagining that it's not all all there at the forefront for everybody. Right. I mean, and what, one of the things that when I went to the climate strike a couple of weeks ago, um, they invited, they made, they made it. They were very intentional. You can tell about including different people from different backgrounds. Good. Um, That's great. Because generally the the coverage has been the Greta the Greta Thunbergs, right? Um, yeah. Across the country, even here in Charlotte, there's right. articles about the wonderful children who are doing this work. Um, Mary Ellis Stevens, who's actually coming as well with Little Miss Flint, who goes to Myers Park High School. Fabulous. But she was very intentional about making sure that the climate strike wasn't just people who looked like her, but they were a, a, a plethora of, of different intersecting diversities happening yes. at that event. Um, and so I just think it's an important thing to throw into the conversation. Um, one of the books that's on our list is Dumping in Dixie. Yes, Robert Bullard. Robert Bullard, who is the father of environmental justice. That's what they call him. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. this is helpful because, again, we've talked about generational divides on the podcast before, particularly related to our, our Proud Theology cast and – uh, but they came up also in the Identity Crisis podcast. Mm-hmm. And here we are again talking about an issue where there's a big generational divide. And mm. I think as you and I told our stories last time, one of the things that came up for me was how my parents think about environment versus how I think about the environment mm-hmm. and where – or even how my grandparents think about it versus how my parents and then I think about it. Um, there is a big difference between earth care – creation care or earth what are our earth keepers movement here at the church you know trying to conserve energy and water and 
making sure we're collecting batteries and recycling, right? right? Mm -hmm. There's a very big difference from that and environmental justice. Right. And they're connected. They're very connected. Sort of some of the same ideas are there. Sustainability, Mm -hmm. all of us living together in a community that makes sense, Mm -hmm. not being wasteful, not, not destroying the water, not creating pollution. Right. But it's different to then it's very different from that to start to look and see how the environmental environmental injustice has impacted certain communities, poor black communities and mm-hmm. poor communities much worse than it has white communities. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how you can start to see the trend moving from a white-centered creation care uh, recycling mm-hmm. anti-pollution movement to a black and brown centered um, earth justice, environmental justice movement is when you begin to actually see how environmental justice works as a form of oppression. Mm-hmm. Uh, environmental injustice has worked as a form of oppression in yeah. the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has overly impacted certain communities that didn't have a voice or were neglected. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think um, that closing that generational gap is key to the work of what we're trying to do on the podcast and in the Awakening series in general is to say, OK, you've talked about environment a lot over the course of your life if you're a person that that's been an issue for you or mm-hmm. you're just a progressive person in general. You've probably thought about that. And you might not have thought about it through the lens of justice. You mm. may have thought about it through the lens of stewardship. Hmm. And I don't know that people always connect stewardship and justice together. It's not in the in the Christian imagination. Yeah. They're not necessarily um, directly connected. Mm-hmm. We think stewardship is about tending to what we've been given appropriately, faithfully, or whatever. And we think justice is like fairness and equity, and and we don't always necessarily connect the two of those together. They're actually usually listed separately in our ethical kind of categorizations mm. uh, of what we do. And and I think so. I think part of the work for for the sort of theological imagination for our listeners is to try to bring stewardship and justice into conversation. Yeah, and in, to the point of maybe making them intersected or merging them as theological concepts together. I think biblically, stewardship is justice, um, and the same, mm. and vice versa. Um, but we have separated them. We also like we separate peace as its own category over here, separate from justice, separate from stewardship. You know, mm-hmm. in many ways, these ethical concepts are really all connected. I talked about last time, and as you've heard, as you listened to the intro of the podcast, living in right relationship with God, ourselves, and all created things, each right. other and all created things, that's peace, harmony, uh, wholeness, um, uh, reconciliation, you might say, is another mm-hmm. word you might describe it, as you have as, as sort of the head, header for the Awakening series. You could also call that justice. You could also call that stewardship. Justice and stewardship apart is reconciliation together. It's a part part of of the package. It's a part of that greater peace that is right relationship with creation, Mm -hmm. right relationship with other creatures. We are humans are animals, right? And, And so what I think has happened generationally is that there's been a, oh, yeah, right relationship with with the earth, but not necessarily an emphasis on right relationship with neighbor. Mm. Near and far, okay. and so okay. what I'm trying to bring to, is bring it together. We're going to bring it together, right? Yeah, that's right. right. Um, because you can't care deep so deeply about your own land and not be concerned about the fact that others don't even have clean water or right 
grass or whatever, you yeah. know, whatever they need. To that point, and I thought your article really made me think, and I think partly it was the name, it was um, Aaron Mayer's last name, mm-hmm. M-A-I-R, mm-hmm. and how this article talked about the, the racial injustice in this related to environment and how, as you said, there's relationship with creatures and relationship with human beings. And sometimes we're like, oh, I, it's sort of like the person who loves dog who says, I love animals more than I love people. Mm-hmm. And we see those on Facebook all mm-hmm. the time and really do. Like they're not being – they're not joking. Yeah. They really do love animals <laughs> more than people. I do sometimes. You know, well, we all do because animals, animals don't always uh, create for us the kind of emotional tensions that mm-hmm. people do, right? Mm-hmm. They can't hurt us the same way people do, right? Break our hearts, mm-hmm. make annoy us, frustrate mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are very forgiving. Animals forget immediately and come back to you 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 know sometimes you know even if you, people who are violent to dogs a dog comes running back and loves yeah. loves the person yeah. right which is sort of like a human pathology we would mm-hmm. that's the relationships we all want even though they're toxic which mm-hmm. is like i can do get away with whatever and my dog still loves me yeah you know? yeah <laughs> there's no yeah. accountability mm-hmm. um but i thought about like the story of john muir i think the last name mayor and Aaron Mayer made me think of John Muir, who is this sort of hero of white environmentalists. He was a conservationist is what they would call him mm-hmm. now looking back. But John Muir, while he was an, you know, an incredible conservationist and wrote some beautiful poetry about nature and advocated for the sake of maintaining and conserving wildlife and forests, also did not know how to treat indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. And got caught up in all kinds of forms of environmental racism, right? Mm. And so here is this like leading conservationist in the imagination of many people, one of the best there is and people quoting from him all the time. In fact, there's like 20 articles now about why you shouldn't quote from John Muir anymore, right? Um, And it talks about how this naturalist, this romantic poet and conservationist who helped capture the love of creation – and help people fall in love with nature mm. uh, through his poetry and through his conservation efforts and through his long strolls and walks through the woods, very romantic, did not also then center indigenous voices who were one with the land. In fact, oppressed indigenous people mm-hmm. and was a part of oppressing indigenous people and didn't stop to say, no, we shouldn't do this. So on the one hand, here he is loving nature, highlighting love of nature, helping people fall in love with nature and – not dealing, not knowing how to relate to people, hmm. and so going back to shalom, yeah. the concept you can't you can't do one without the other and be in shalom. Yeah, if you're hurting people but you're lo- in love with nature, you're actually out of shalom. Yeah, right. That's right. And That's so right. there's this this idea that it's it's like when people sometimes say, and I love these folks who say, you know, I'm communing with God and nature, you know, and I, I, that's my sanctuary, that's my cathedral, that's my that's my church mm-hmm. is nature. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, that's great. But who are the people in your church? Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe it's creatures, but there probably are people on the land somewhere yeah. In, yeah. In, in relationship to you. And how, how you treat them is a part of your church. Yeah. Even if your church is a sanctuary in the forest mm-hmm. that you care about, that land is connected to someone who is connected to that land, mm-hmm. either historically who are no longer there or currently, who right. are connected to that piece of land for right. some reason. And I think we have to remember uh, that we have to hold those in, in, in equality with each other. Our, our care of people and our care of creature, other creatures that are not humans and the land itself is all a part of what shalom means. Yeah. 
speaking of land, we're we're recording this on what has been called Indigenous Peoples Day. Yes. So that's that's somewhat right. controversial still because some of them don't receive that after all these years. It yeah. does it's not enough reparation. It really isn't. But mm-hmm. but I, I, I do think that there's something to be added to the conversation, the larger conversation about um, the ways in which we have been taught to care for the land, but while completely ignoring its its history and who who manned it or who who mm. cared for it before mm-hmm. us. That's right. Yeah. Well, better to call it Indigenous Peoples Day than yeah. to call oh. it Colonialist right. Invasion Day. The, the, the uh, alternative <laughs> is worse. A Spanish <laughs> colonialist and uh, getting lost in the in the, mm-hmm. in the on the ocean and and landing on people's lives and bringing them pain, injustice, slavery, famine. Right. Uh, Right. Disease and right. pain. Um, yeah, I think it's important, right, and, and on Indigenous Peoples Day for us to remember the original inhabitants of the land that we are actually doing the podcast on. Right. Which is Catawba land. Right. And related to the – we are in the Catawba watershed mm-hmm. to highlight something that Ched Myers and others have taught us is that mm-hmm. we are – everybody lives in a watershed somewhere. And that watershed is usually connected to an indigenous group that lived in the land and lived in that watershed. And all of us depend on the watershed and our care for the watershed in which we live is really important. He even kind of claimed this term watershed discipleship, yeah. that our, our care and love and actually protection, justice and protection of the watershed is uh, some of the most important discipleship work that we can do mm. um, as people living on land that we have either taken or settled on or uh, colonized or inherited from right. those who came before us. Right. And, and to join in the fight, because some of them are still very active. I know um, the Lundby and some of the other groups along the Atlantic coastline right now are fighting right. against that pipeline. And so as we continue to have the conversation this year about the yes. intersection of race and environmental justice, to keep that in mind that they are some of them are still organized groups, right. and nationally recognized, federated. And so we need to work with them to right. do the work that we say we care about so deeply. Yeah. And so yeah. just a quick shout out for another group then is the Catawba Lands Conservancy, which mm. is, is in the work of con- conserving Catawba land. Yeah. So just for those who, who care about the land that they live on. Yeah. Good. Well, you mentioned farming just now when you were talking. You mentioned a little bit about famine, mm. <laughs> mm. the famine in the land. And uh, for, for those of us who say, where, what, what, what does faith have to do with all of this? You oh, know, yeah. there, there's so much famine in the land, specifically or particularly in the Hebrew Bible or the mm. Old Testament. This seems like there's always a famine in the land. And and so we're not the first to sort of experience this ecological catastrophe that we're mm-hmm. in right now, mm-hmm. um, that it's been civilizations and civilizations before us that have been going through this. And so you found an article that I thought was interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a provocative article. Uh-huh. Um, so I was thinking about famine a lot, too, because, you know, when Mia, when you found some amazing scriptures that connect to the environment, and we're going to talk about some of these, the ones that always mm-hmm. come to mind are the creation story itself and the revelation story, and then some other stories throughout the Bible that where we deal with animals or creatures, creation or land, that are sort of, they kind of pop up here and there. There's some awesome stuff in Job about God loving Leviathan and wild things, and there's great stuff about birds, and these things that kind of pop up here and there. But... Actually, it's all over the place, and and it's sort of a, a thread throughout the whole Bible from beginning to end if you deal with the question of famine, as you mentioned. And famine, I just did a quick search, appears like 114 times in the Bible. Mm. So it's a lot. Mm-hmm. It's not just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And we can all remember the famine that um, uh, that ha- that led to Joseph uh, – 
the famine that he predicted that led to him becoming liberated from jail and being able to to then become appointed by Pharaoh to oversee the distribution of food in the middle of a famine mm. right and which was that's the that's like the longest story in the whole bible is about Joseph that's his right. story and dealing with this big famine and then they store up these grains and then so they they in the in the years of plenty they store up so that in the years of famine they can feed people and actually mm. that's how his family comes back around to him because in the years of famine they have to come to Egypt to get mm-hmm. grain because their land has been decimated by the famine. So that story alone, and then you think about the prodigal son deals with famine. These mm-hmm. are the, some of the most important stories in the whole Bible yeah. have famine at the heart of it. Ruth, the story of Ruth and Naomi, That's right. they're traveling because of a famine in the right. land. That's right. Some of our most important texts and all the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, they all predict famine is going to be one of the re- results of the of the violence that is besetting Israel as a result of its infidelity and its its wars and its mistreatment of the poor and the and the oppressed is that famine will come will, mm-hmm. as one of the consequences which we know now learning backwards that often famine is a consequence of war because war devastates the land uh, mm-hmm. or or dis- and destroys crops you think about you know, uh, General Sherman coming through the South and burning up farms mm. on his way through the South wow. as he burns the land. So wow. anyway, all that. I found this crazy article <laughs> by Jared Diamond, uh, who uh, teaches at the University of California at Los Angeles Medical School. This is from the 80s, and the title of the article is The Worst Mistake in the History of the Human Race. Wow. So it's a, again, it's a provocative title. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure if that's true, but this is what he's saying is that the worst mistake in the history of the human race is the adoption of agriculture. Okay, so – as, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably like, what? Yeah, they, don't they're, they're clicking me, off. They're don't <laughs> tell me that farming is the worst mistake in human history. How would civilizations ever have survived? How would there we have ever – how would we have ever figured out how to live in these communities and and build civilizations? Well, his point is that the sort of myth of progress, uh, we've looked back now and we can see that actually our sort of ideas that history just kind of unfolds ever forward in a, in a movement of progress is not really the case. Mm-hmm. And that new uh, archaeological discoveries and biological studies have found that human beings were not um, always shorter and got taller as the advan- as during the advance of civilization – And that advanced agriculture is what helped people get healthier, taller, uh, and live longer. Hmm. But in fact, there were times where people were healthier and taller average than we are now. And and certainly taller and healthier than people were during times of advanced agriculture, the early sort of uh, agriculture. So 10,000 years ago is about when we created uh, agriculture as we know it now, where we domesticated animals – and uh, began the process of tending to the land. Of course, the problem is, and this is what relates to famine, is that human beings um, realize that through technology, through ways of farming, that they could create like large orchards, right, or large 
crops of land mm. where they could grow one crop really successfully and grow a whole lot of it and feed a whole lot of people for a short period of time, sometimes for a long period of mm-hmm. time, which was far more efficient than going around hunting and gathering. Right. Every day you wake up wondering whether you're going to starve or whether you're going to survive, right? right. You, you either find the flock and you know, take care of the flock of bison or whatever, mm-hmm. and you kill one, and you 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 know you use every part of it, and and then you move on, or you and you or you find berries, or you find things r- rummaging through the forest, or you don't. That's sort of a how do you build a civilization around that sort of nomadic existence? Right. And so we always imagine that you know the question, even the question he says in the article, even the question that agriculture had. Could not have been. It wasn't a net gain for humanity um, and for the earth itself. Is somehow like a preposterous question. Mm-hmm. But what Diamond has gone back and done is found that certain kinds of agricultural practices actually led to famine. Because what happens when you grow one single crop on a piece of land for a long period of time is you destroy the soil, because soil needs to have a rotation of crops through it. Over time, yeah, so that the soil can be and it needs to be left fallow, which we hear that's there's a lot of biblical language about leaving the ground fallow for a year so that it can rejuvenate oh, yes. and regenerate itself. Leviticus, Leviticus, year right? Jubil- you know, Tied to yes, jubilee practices, right. farming right. practices, yeah. right? Is the restoration of the soil the 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 land itself needs to rest. Mm-hmm. And if the land needs to rest, certainly people need to rest. Right. If God rested, we all need to rest. Right. And so you leave the land fallow for a whole year for it to regenerate. But sometimes you do that and then you introduce a new crop hmm. so that the land can then uh, be even more sustainable. It grows if you have a crop rotation on it. So smaller gardens, um, not instead of huge orchards mm-hmm. where you rotate crops over and over again. And so what what Diamond points out is that this sort of idea that we just kind of came up with agriculture and then invented civilization and everything got became great. In reality, we have struggled in our agricultural practices because sometimes, just like this like applies to the environmental situation today, sometimes technology leads to environmental injustice hmm. if it's not applied well, yeah. right? Yeah. Think about uh, coal mining. Mm-hmm. Think about oil Oil mm, drilling. Gosh, yes. Um, these uh, these kind of natural resources that we're using to either power locomotives, power our homes, build steamships, mm-hmm. you know, in, engage in warfare, right. you know, all sorts of different things that we need these sort of technologies for that we use natural le- resources to develop um, can lead to further environmental injustice. Mm-hmm. In the same way that an agricultural practice that only grows one crop for a large group of people. Uh, you know, think about think about cotton. I mean, think about think. Uh, once you start talking about cotton, now you can you can really get mm-hmm. a sense of mm-hmm. agriculture's connection to capitalist economy, to all the way down to today, and how yeah. what that did to the land. Think about tobacco. Mm-hmm. Think about corn. So, for instance, <laughs> one of the corn, great yes. examples of corn in America is in Iowa, where Iowa has the richest soil, some of the richest soil in the world. It grows be- some of the faster and better and stronger than anywhere in the world, they are actually a net importer of vegetables. 
because every they can't grow anything because they can only grow corn. corn. Mm-hmm. Every square of land, it's more valuable for them to grow corn because corn can be used for high fructose corn syrup, yeah. which is very expensive. You very can make terrible money for your body, <laughs> and they can make ethanol out of it. Yes. So they can use it for basically for gas or for for sugar. Uh-huh. Both of which are not the best way uses of corn. Right. Meanwhile, no, most people are not eating that much corn, mm-hmm. right? To, for it to be um, that much of a health, it's not really that health beneficial for us to eat corn, right? I love it, but yes, you're. It's right. delightful, but it's not so great for us. It's not. It's not like a. It's not like eating broccoli. No, it's not. It's really not great for the human anatomy. But yes, right. Yeah. You know, and so um, here's this, you know, we're like the whole nation of corn. There's that great book called Corn Nation Mm -hmm. that's about this problem. Mm -hmm. And why – so why is the richest soil in the world being used to to grow corn and import vegetables? It shows us that the problem is with the agricultural industry. It becomes an industry, becomes a part of an empire and now you're stuck at a place where you're you're manufacturing a product on it and you're not doing what's best for the people. Mm -hmm. You're you're doing what's best for the economy, Mm -hmm. which is not always what's best for the people. Hint, hint, you know? And this goes back many civilizations just to sort of connect it. You know, it's, this is not like a modern phenomenon where we mm-hmm. are destroying the, the land in this way. But I was watching the, um, the series that um, Henry Louis Gates has on yes. PBS, and he talks about ancient civilizations and how even the Egyptian empire was able to become an empire because of farming practices. Right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And so some of these early farming practices in – in the Middle East, in fact, led to the destruction of civilizations. I mean, Diamond finds later in a book that he wrote that I haven't read that um, some of the early civilizations in Samaria were ended up dying out because they created farming practices that led to famine and killed the entire civilization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some of the famines that we hear about in Egypt were related to them agricult- engaging in agricultural practices that were not healthy for the land itself. Yeah. And then there was a reaction. The land reacts to it. In fact, that goes back to the plagues and the questions about the plagues uh, in, in the Exodus story. Mm-hmm. Some of those, some of the some of the plagues that were happened there could have been the result of bad farming practices, bad agriculture practices mm-hmm. that were not tending to the land. And here's the thing. It all boils down to time. Time and productivity. And so if I mean just just to get real theological, um, yes, please. It takes <laughs> it takes longer and it takes patience to tend to the land carefully. Mm-hmm. And it does not always yield the result that is most um, advantageous for those in control of the land. Mm-hmm. So if you want to use the land for what's best for the land and what's best for the people on the land, you have to be patient. You have to take a year off to grow nothing. Yes. You have to rotate from corn to tomatoes yeah. or something else. And you have to rotate different sections around. You have to figure out how the animals – as we learned at Reverence, how the animals and the flocks work wet, work well to pasteurize an area, right? Mm-hmm. You put to eat the grass in one place mm-hmm. and then to move to another and the grass grows larger in the place that they cultivated because of the way the animals know how to take care of the land. We learned about the pigs yeah. eating and it looks like they've destroyed this area where they've eaten everything. Then they move off it and the grass grows twice as big where the where the pigs were mm-hmm. because the pigs are rolling around in it. They're fertilizing yeah. it. They're taking care of the land yeah. because that's a part of what pigs do and who pigs are. And so until you figure out how to use the animals and you take time to figure that out and you take time to leave the ground fallow and you rotate crops, what it doesn't create is a system of commodification and productivity where you feed 
people corn and they they're they're not hungry and so they can keep working. Yeah. You know. Um so the sin is a sin, is the sin in patience? Part of it is it's part greed. of it is speed. It's greed and well speed is related to greed. Yeah, time is yeah. money. Yeah. So if you if you could save time, you make more money. And right. so usually it's the landowner who is using mm. a agricultural practice that is faster and creates more food more quickly for a larger group of people that mm-hmm. then cuts corners and doesn't leave the ground fallow and is just trying to make money all the time and eventually to the point where they destroy the land. Yeah. And then there's a famine and but the, this person who owned it was they're fine because they they made money. Yeah. It's who's not fine is the people who depend on that person and depend on that land. Mm-hmm. And so Again, it sort of comes back to – yeah, it comes back to speed. Time is money. And so taking more time – it's Sabbath, really. Honestly, it boils down to that theological concept. I want to read this scripture because I think, you know, we talk sometimes like everybody reads Leviticus and we know that you don't (laughs) open Leviticus. No, yeah. No. (laughs) Not unless you want to be bored to death with laws. Listen, I understand. I don't do much Levitical (laughs) reading, you know, myself. But I think that it's important for um, the purpose of what we keep talking about, Sabbath and rest. And so it's Leviticus. Leviticus 25, 25, Mm. um, starting at verse 1, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. And it says, The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land that I am giving you, the land shall observe a Sabbath Mm. for the Lord. Mm. Six years... You shall sow your field and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in the field. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. All right, I'll just stop there because I, know. I think it gets, <laughs> that's I think amazing. It gets to the point. Yeah. I mean, that's that's perfect, right? Yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, we sometimes think about Sabbath as a commandment for human human beings. Yeah, self care. We need. A, <laughs> we need. Yes, that's right. I need. I need a day off. Yes, I need a mental right. health day. That's right. You know, no, it's it's rooted in the. I think what the, what will help people sometimes is that um, that we get really anxious about God's commandments as progressive people. Liberals are the worst about this. Mm-hmm. We really don't like it when God tells us to do something. <laughs> we would like to say, no, thank you, God. Um, Jesus, no, thank you. We're okay. We can make up our own laws for ourselves. How's that going for us? 2019. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, so God's commandments are not arbitrary. Right. They are rooted in the nature of the creation that God has given us mm-hmm. to be stewards of. And so when God says, it is best for the land and for you to rest, mm-hmm. you ought to do it. Uh, not because God said it, but because it is written within the fabric of who you are and what the land is and who what the land is that they, needs rest. Right. So it's like – it's like somebody saying to you, you should eat vegetables. <laughs> and you're like, what a stupid command. <laughs> I want french fries. <laughs> That's terrible. I don't believe in a God who would tell me to eat vegetables. You know, mm-hmm. and here we are saying to God, you know, don't tell me to keep the land fallow for a year. I can't make any money doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, don't tell me to stop being productive for a few hours mm-hmm. a day. I can't make any money doing that. You know, yeah. uh, it all comes back to sort of how we think meaning is derived and what wor- where worth comes from and what time, how we think about time, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so I think part of what has happened in a capitalist economy is that we have commodified time itself. Mm. Every minute is valued, mm. right? 
to the point where rest seems like an unproductive activity. And I was just reading uh, – I think I actually was on the um, the TED Talks podcast that NPR does sometimes where they have this whole thing about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And of course like you know, our highest need is for like love and belonging and mm-hmm. community and connection. But there's also like eating, drinking, you know, basic stuff. And one of those that we always neglect is sleep. And people don't treat sleep like a basic human need. Oh, it is though. <laughs> but you know, I really believe that Whitney Houston and Michael Jackson died of a lack of sleep. Prince, oh, oh, these I mean, folks, they couldn't sleep. Yeah, Michael Jackson for sure. Yeah, for they sure. They didn't know how to yeah. sleep. They were actually taking medications to, to get sleep. to sleep. Right. You know, once you get to that point, you're in trouble mm. because sleep is a basic human need and if you don't have enough of it, you will you will lose your mind. Yeah. I mean, you will and you will your health will start to deteriorate. That's right. You know, uh, somebody was I was reading about how um what happens when we sleep is not just the rest of our bodies, but what our mind is doing is creating memory. And if we don't actually sleep, our part of the reason we have memory problems later in life is we didn't get enough sleep earlier. So we like our brain doesn't actually create memory until we're asleep. Oh, okay. You know, so it's like com- it's compounding these stories of our lives, what's happened in our day into short-term and long-term memory. Mm-hmm. And it does it while we're sleeping. You know, mm-hmm. our bodies are working, right? And it actually makes meaning of those things. So it's why people sometimes wake up with a great idea in the in the morning. Oh, yes, yes. Or they had a problem that they went to sleep with that they couldn't think about how to walk through. And then they wake up in the morning and some answers come to them. Mm-hmm. This happens all the time with sermons for me. It's mm-hmm. like, I, I'm like, oh, God, I need, a, need an illustration for yeah. that. And suddenly I wake up in the morning with the perfect illustration. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's like, what happened? Well, my brain was working overnight to try to compress the information and to try to f- stimulate thoughts and create memories or access long-term memory and short-term memories in ways that I couldn't during the day when everything was happening. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, without that, we're not the same human beings as we are. It's a need like eating. Yeah. And we should treat sleep as like we treat eating. You know, that's right, and 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 the land needs that too. Whatever the memory making or whatever the rejuvenation or renewal right. that is taking place, it needs a period of rest. It needs rest. It needs rest. And we have to be okay with the fact that we're not going to be able to grow. We have to like store up enough or yeah. figure it out yeah. or let people glean, which is part of what happens here. You let you know a year of rest and you just let things happen. Whatever happens on the land happens, happens on the land. Right. You're right. Yeah. You don't, you don't till it. You let it go. I mean I think that, that mm. there's something really helpful in that. The other thing is if, if you see here, if you keep going, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean – Keep going get, for us. So we- <laughs> if you start getting into this, you can start seeing justice and ethics all over this place. It's not just deal with land. Oh, you, yeah. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes of your unpruned vine. It shall be a year of complete rest mm. for the land. You may eat what the land yields during its Sabbath, you – and your male and female slaves, your hired and your bound laborers who live with you, for your livestock also, and for the wild animals in your land, all its yield shall be for food. Hmm. So what happens in the year when you don't cultivate it all and then go sell it to the market and you just let it? It's a whole year where people who ordinarily would not be able to glean can uh, just go in can and just get. get what they need, take care of themselves <sighs> for a whole year. People who are even considered here to be bonded slave workers yeah. in the fields yeah. on the land are given a year. That's the other thing. This is a year of liberation mm. because it's a year where they won't actually have to till it. Who are, what are these people doing the rest of the year? They're harvesters. They're right. They're working. They're, they're the laborers. Yeah. They get a whole year off. 
every seven years. We need to transition to this right now. <laughs> what are we doing? I'm telling you what, sabbatical for ministers should be a year, yeah. not a, a year. Well, just the whole church just yeah, goes, just, just everybody just take everybody a year. Everybody should take a whole year off. Now keep paying your tithe. You keep right, paying your tithe, but you just, Absolutely. we just don't do anything for right. a year. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's going to work. It's not going to fly, but I think that there's something, you know, we talk about the, when we were talking earlier about bridging the gap between creation, care, and justice that deals with humans. Right. This is how it comes together. It's right here in the text that you can't do one without the other and call yourself just or. I know. Equitable. I mean, honestly, everything really comes back to the Jubilee and Sabbath. I mean, every Christian ethical practice mm. always comes back to that, which is not a surprise since that was the content of Jesus's first sermon. Mm-hmm. You know, basically, it's all about Jubilee because Jubilee deals with not just environment and creation care and land rest, but mm-hmm. it also deals with economics, mm-hmm. the releasing of people from debts, yeah, that's which right. comes and the releasing of people from slavery and the releasing of people from prison mm-hmm. and the releasing of people from bondage. It's it's just straight up liberation, right? Ugh. For It's liberation for the land and liberation for the people. Mm-hmm. And that's like the most amazing thing about it. Once you, once you have that concept. And so some people think that basically Jubilee and Jesus's proclaiming of the kingdom are the same proclamation. Mm. Whenever Jesus says kingdom, he means Jubilee. Interesting. So for those of you who are interested in that kind of Bible geek stuff. (laughs) Well, yes. I mean, there are those who really want to connect this to Scripture. And so I think as we continue to move through our conversation, more and more Scripture will come up. I know we've been rooting a lot of our work in Genesis 2.15, which Mm. is the the kind of – the, the the command to, to to till the earth and care the better for the creation earth. story right 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 not the not the first one that says have dominion over yeah, but no. but the one to command until the earth but I think that when you start getting into some of the stuff that we don't that's not as sexy you know to, for better for lack of a better word right. I mean right. Leviticus is it's a hard it's a hard read to get through there's some things yeah. in there that really make us upset and then, yeah. you know but there's some other things particularly with the way in with in which we treat the land and our bodies I mean. There was a reason why you weren't eating shellfish. Right. There were bottom feeders, and they were probably making people sick. Right. Making now, sick. That's right, right now we have technology. Now we we, we have a, we're in a different. I mean, I love shrimp, so I'm just yeah. I make I'm gonna make an excuse anyway out of, <laughs> out of the shellfish thing. But also yeah. recognizing there was a reason for that, and so even the right. Levitical codes, there's a reason for this, and the talk of jubilee. Um, mm-hmm. is about reconciliation and liber- liberation for all people. Yeah, one argument could be made that the reasons there are famines throughout the Bible is is the lack of the practice of Jubilee, mm. the lack of the actual implementation of Jubilee farming practices and agricultural practices that leave the ground fallow and work towards sustainability. And so, like, if you did that, you would have less famine because you'd have a year where the ground could rest hmm. and and you would rotate differently and you would think differently. The other thing is you would be liberating your people every 50 years from whatever. You'd return the land to its original owner. I mean, there's mm. all kinds of economic justice that would take place, right. all kinds of debt bondage that would be released. People right. would be released from debt bondage. The land <sighs> itself would be released. So, like, yes. most – yeah, a lot of economic injustice and environmental injustice wouldn't occur if people practiced Jubilee. Hmm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think that's a great place to to, to stop for the day. Yeah. Jubilee. Getting back to Jubilee in some some kind of in some kind of way, we got to get back there. Absolutely. And there's yeah. a bunch of resources on Jubilee uh, for those who want to do any further learning on that. And mm-hmm. again, the, the, some of the articles that we referenced on this for those who want to read it are the un- unsustainable whiteness of green by Amelia Bates. 
and The Worst Mistake in the History of the Human Race by Jared Diamond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so read up, and then we'll see you for our next episode next time. All right. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye.